So I have the privilege of introducing our first speaker. Montreal Haygood serves the church part-time through leading, promoting evangelism, outreach, and serving the pastoral team through member care. Montreal was born and raised in Barnesville, Georgia, and um, attended the University of West Georgia and earned a bachelor's in sociology. Montreal joined the Garden Church in August of 2013. In addition to serving the Garden, Montreal oversees our One Hope campus ministry uh, at Coppin State University, and he's also um, pursuing his MDiv at Faith Theological Seminary. He has been married to his wonderful wife, Jody Samantha, for five months. Please welcome to the stage, Montreal Haygood. Good evening. I'm going to be talking about uh, the scriptures tonight, the reliability of them, and why. Sweetheart, you need your water? Let me just put you on the spot right quick and embarrass you. They didn't know who my wife was. They just heard her name. Here you go. No, she looks so good, y'all. She's so shy. <laughs> All right, so at some point, we all find ourselves asking this question, why the Bible? Whether it's an individual who grew up going to church in a small rural town like I did, and at the beginning of services, the deacons would slowly walk to the front and they'll grab a chair. And they'll kneel at the chair and they'll start praying at it. Does anybody have this experience? No one has this experience? Oh, my man, okay, you now. You got to put your hand. I can't hardly see you. All right. Yeah, and, and, and that was devotion. The deacons would come out and they'll pray and then they'll sing a song very slowly. And as a child, you're just like, all right, hurry up. Let's, let's get to it. So whether you grew up in, in that environment or perhaps someone who did not grow up in a, in a, in a Christian environment and, and their parents kind of borrowed from, from all religions and were, were open-minded and they were morally good people and then, you know, uh, that person came to faith and their parents were happy for them. And, yeah, so they could have came from, from that background. Or it could have been someone who grew up in a very strict religion that was shame-based, and they heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they uh, accepted, uh, they heard the good news, and they accepted Christ, and they're living for him now. But at the same time, they're ostracized from their family, and they're, they're feel, feeling lonely now because of that. And they see, script, or they see examples of this in the scripture, but there's still a, a loneliness and, and, a, and a sense of coldness that's there. And, and some people ask the question, why the Bible genuinely? And some people ask to make a mockery of it. But no matter what category people fall into, at some point, everyone asks the question, why the Bible? Well, this evening, I have the responsibility and the honor of speaking on this subject, why the Bible? First and foremost, let me say this, because this is going to guide us as we are in this subject this evening. The Bible exists because an infinite God wants to communicate to a finite people. Let me say that again. The Bible exists because an infinite God wants to communicate to a finite people. And we can't say amen because of that. 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, Long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Now some of you right now may be asking what in the world does that have to do with the Bible? How does God speaking to his son equate to the scriptures? Well, as Christians, we believe in truth. That means that something is correct at all times in all places. So if I were to go to Japan right now and I would say humans need water to survive, they would probably more than likely nod at that and say, yes, this is, this is truth, right? Now, on the other hand, if I went to Spain and I said American football is the best sport ever, and the fact that we call it football is logical, doesn't make sense. But they would, you know, that would probably be problematic, right? Because that's not truth. That's an opinion. Let me do one more. If I were to say that you're supposed to eat every part of the chicken except for the bone, can I get an amen? Joel and I were at a meeting the other day and uh, we had chicken. I looked down at my man's plate and it was like he left some other part on and I said, bro, that's a whole nother half chicken right there, bro. You better, you better eat that. <laughs> But some of us would say that that's truth. But going back to truth, how does, how does that verse relate? How does that verse about Jesus relate to scripture? Let's look at it again. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. It's related because God is the ultimate source of truth. Justin Martyr, a man who defended Christianity back in the second century, said this. He says, for I choose to follow not men or men's doctrines, but God and the doctrines delivered by him. So the way that this works is God the Father passed this truth along to his son, and in turn, Christ passed it along to others such as the apostles and the eyewitnesses of his works and others that walk with him. Since an infinite God who is the source of truth, wanted to communicate with a finite humanity, then we must trust the way in which he chose to do so, namely the Bible. Let me start off by getting straight to it. We don't have any original manuscripts, any of them. We don't have any of the, the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament or the original copies or, or manuscripts or what any of the apostles or the prophets wrote. They've been everything from lost to destroyed. Some have questioned the authenticity of the Bible that we have because of this. So how is it that we not have the exact documents that were written in the past, yet we cling to a book with such hope and literally entrust the eternity of our souls with its words? Well, let me tell you how. Growing up in Sunday school, actually, we would play a game called Password. Now, you probably played the game as well, but you probably called it something differently. So this is where uh, the students would sit down in an organized way, whether that's in a square or by rows or a circle, and the teacher would come up with a statement. And they would tell the first student, and then the student would whisper in the other student's ear, and, and so on and so forth until we got to the end. Oh, well, we called it Password. <laughs> So, it all makes sense, but that's what we call it. I grew up in the South. Um, 
so they would they would pass this along, right? So the original statement could have been something like the stars shine brightly at night. And by the time you got to that last person, they're saying something like Heath Ledger was the best ba- uh, the best Joker ever. Now that's truth, um, but it, it was it was something that was was different from what was said initially. Some of y'all's Facebook posts are like that. You start off saying like, hey, look at my dog. And by the time you get to the 33rd comment, they're just like, 9-11 wasn't this side job. Like, how did we get here? But an extremely different statement was given at the end that was given initially. Well, this is how some people approach the Bible. They ask questions like, well, what if God was originally saying this? By the time we get the Bible, it's saying this. But we have reason to believe that that's not the case. Although we don't have the original manuscripts, we do have copies that have been made of them. And we have a lot of copies. And some would then ask, well, if it's so many, then how do you know what to trust? Well, the more the merrier. The more we have, the more they can be compared with one another so that truth can be produced from them. F.F. Bruce says this. He says, fortunately... If the great number of manuscripts increases the number of scribal errors, it increases proportionately the means of correcting such errors so that the margin of doubt left in the process of recovering the exact original wording is not so large as might be feared. It is in truth remarkably small. Let me give you an example. Uh, My man is right here in the middle. You, who just pointed to the other guy. What's your name? (laughs) What's your name? Jeff, say I give Jeff an invitation to this conference that we're at right now. Jeff makes a copy of my invitation. And then Jeff, all right, what's your name now that he put you on the spot? He passes it to Brian and Daniel and and Dan. That makes sense. (laughs) So I give him, I give Jeff the original invitation that I crafted. That I, that I wrote up with my, with my own hands, my own hand. Jeff makes a copy for himself, and he passes it along to everyone. So at, you know, this morning, my man Dan comes to Jeff, and he says, Jeff, are you ready for the One Pope Conference? Now, Jeff is kind of looking at him like, you know how you, you, you look, and you just look, and then you kind of cock your head to the side just a little bit? The one Pope conference, like, what are you talking about? Like, the, the reason for the Reformation is that we broke away from the Catholic Church. And like, why are you talking about one Pope conference? And then they're, they start to say, well, it's the one Hope conference that's on McCullough Street. This is McCullough Street right out here. He says McCullough Street. And then they realize that their invitations aren't all the same. So some type of way, the H is, have been changed to P's. Right? And so Dan has some information that doesn't correlate with Jeff's information. And Jeff say, okay, cool. Let me go and straighten this out. Let me go get the original one. Only to find out that he left it in the copy or somebody threw it away. It's gone. So now they have to sit down and compare the invitations to each other to try to figure out, okay, what's being said here? Well, it's the same way with the scriptures. We have something that was originally given to us. And then there were people who came together with all of these different copies and compared them 
to one another. So they made it here on time for the One Hope Conference. Now, let me ask you a question. Was there anything wrong with the information that I initially gave Jeff? No, there was not anything wrong with it at all. And it's the same with the Bible. Things were written down and copies were made of the original. Now, the position that we hold is that those originals are without error. And that's important. There are some mistakes in the copies, but experts in this field conclude that around 95% of the variances or the differences in the copies are unintentional, usually grammatical, and don't change the doctrine addressed in Scripture. So in other words, even considering the differences in the manuscripts, important doctrines such as salvation, for example, does not change. Salvation, even in the flaws in the manuscripts, will always be by grace and not by works. Somebody should have shouted right then. Even with the differences that we have in these copies, they don't change major doctrine in scriptures. They're just, they're, they're grammatical errors. 95% of them are grammatical errors. So in the words of Marcus Gray, the Bible is the most thoroughly documented work of all antiquity. If we can't trust the Bible, then we cannot trust anything. So now that we can trust the Bible, it'll be worth it to look at who wrote it. Was it God or was it man? Should we just say God wrote it? It is what it is. Drop the mic and finish the conference. Or should we wrestle with it? Well, we kind of have to to wrestle with it because there are clear cases when we see an individual is writing. It's not uncommon for Paul to make statements like, I'm writing this with my own hand, or other leaders like Peter or James to begin their letters with stating their names. Now, does this discredit God's involvement? I like to call your attention to 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, where Peter writes, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, humans are some intelligent, talented, and creative individuals. The fact that we as a human race are as technologically advanced as we are is amazing. Now, if we could just get YouTube to keep playing when we close it out, that'd be even better. But we've come a long way technologically as a human race. But aside from the fact that we are an exceptional race, according to the verse that we just read, human beings do not produce the scriptures on their own, meaning that God superintended the writer as they were writing, and the writers still have their own personality and DNA within their writings. In 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul confirms this saying, all scripture is breathed out by God. Some scriptures, all scriptures are breathed out by God. Scriptures within themselves are inspired by God. And not only are they inspired by him, but they have Christ tied within them. Another way to think of the scriptures is in the same way that we think of Jesus. The Bible teaches that Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. He never ceased to be God. He didn't cease to be man. The scriptures follow the same recipe for authorship. They are 100% human, yet 100% divine. When God was superintending these writers as they wrote, 
And when the writers were inspired, it's not inspired. And we got a, we got a number of artists in here, a number of people in the arts. And oftentimes I would hear, to, hear them say like, man, like I'm inspired to, to write. I'm inspired to, to, to compose. I'm inspired to produce. Well, the writers weren't inspired the same way uh, that, that these artists are. And they weren't drunk when it happened either. Meaning that when, 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 when they were writing and they were being used by God, they weren't in this trance and then snapped out of it and said, okay, what we got? That's not how it went. They, they, the, the, the writers weren't like some people after they've been drinking all night. Y'all ain't been saved that long. Y'all, can, y'all remember that. <laughs> and then you check your phone all scared and stuff like, oh my goodness, what did I see? The writers weren't inspired like that. They were under the use of the Holy Spirit, and they knew what they were writing, when they were writing, and they knew that God was guiding their hands as they wrote. So having said that, let's dive into what the Bible is. The Bible is a treatise, if you will, that is comprised of 66 books. In other words, these books are cohesive and systematically point to a bigger picture. We'll dive into that later. These books vary by genre. These genres range from wisdom, poetry, historical, and books that speak about the works of the prophet. As I said earlier, uh, and we saw earlier in Hebrews chapter 1. One role of the prophets was to warn people about God's judgment with hopes that they would turn away from their sin. One of these prophets by the name of Jeremiah records this in chapter 31 and verse 31 of his book. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their forefathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. This is, this is where we get the concept of the, the Old Testament and the New Testament to signify that, simply speaking, God had two covenantal relationships with humanity. The first covenantal relationship, which we, which we know as the Old Testament, started in the garden and was upheld with Moses. The second covenantal relationship, the New Testament, is seen when Christ hits the scene. Now, the Old Testament has 39 books and was written between 1400 and 430 B.C., so for about a a course of a thousand years. It was largely written in Hebrew with some portions in Aramaic. Historically, the Old Testament had been accepted in the Hebrew Bible, although it was organized a tad bit differently. So we have how many books in the Old Testament? 39. So the Hebrew Bible was organized with 24 books because they kept certain books together that we separate. So, for example, we have First and Second Kings. They just had Kings. We have First and Second Chronicles. They just have Chronicles, so on and so forth. And they had uh, all of their minor prophets together. And, and, and they're called minor prophets not because of their significance, but because of the length of their books. And so we would categorize the Old Testament into four sections and they only do it in three. For us, it's law, history, poetry, and prophets. For the Hebrew Bible, it's law, prophets, and writings. It's often said that if you believe Jesus, then you should accept the Old Testament. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus used a popular Old Testament figure to foreshadow his own resurrection, saying, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. On another event in Luke chapter 24, Jesus said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand 
the scripture. The things, two things I want to draw from this. One, Psalms are the largest of the writing section, and sometimes it's used to refer to the whole section. The second is to draw out what Jesus, um, that Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures, which is in, in context is the Hebrew Bible and what we recognize as the Old Testament. So there hasn't been many issues historically concerning the Old Testament. Every now and then an opposer would pop up, and this was the case in the second century with Martian. But other than that, it's been widely accepted among Christians. Walt Kaiser said this, and I'm with him. He said, Jesus and his apostles affirmed the Jewish canon of the Hebrew scriptures in their day. And as a follower of Jesus, I affirm the same. Now, the New Testament is a little bit different as far as its acceptance. The New Testament catches a lot of slack. It's kind of like LeBron James. Can't never do nothing right, no matter how good he does. Now, the New Testament has 27 books and was written in Greek. The time span of the New Testament being written was much shorter than that of the Old Testament. The New Testament was written between A.D. 45 and A.D. 100. The letters were circulating in the early church as early as A.D. 90. We know this based off of 2 Peter 3.16 when Paul mentioned the difficulty of Paul, uh, when Peter mentioned the difficulty of Paul's writings. There were a lot of letters that were being circulated at this time, and the early church needed to determine what scriptures were authoritative and would be accepted by all churches and Christians. To do this, they needed a standard. If you ever shop for produce, then you understand this, right? You go to get some fruit, and what are you going to do before you, what should you do before you buy it? You should hold it up and examine it and look at it. You smell it? <laughs> hold it up and you look at it before you buy it to make sure that it meets your standards, correct? So the books had to meet certain qualifications. The term that is used for this is canon. The word originally meant, originally meant in Hebrew, measuring rod, and over time it simply became to mean standard or rule. And the same principle is applied to the Old Testament. Old Testament and Hebrew canon can be used interchangeably. Now, what was the standard for books to be accepted in the Old Testament? First, they had to be apostolic, meaning that they were either written by an apostle or someone that was close to an apostle. So there is no book that's in the New Testament that does not meet this standard. Secondly, it had to be Catholic. So not Catholic in the term or in the sense that some people use it today in and um, describing different strains of, of Christianity, but Catholic simply means universal, right? So they were universally recognized by the church. Lastly, these books needed to be consistent with other recognized apostolic books or doctrine. Ladies and gentlemen, in the words of Robert Plummer, the canon is not an authorized collection of writings. The church did not confer its authority or approval upon the list of books. Rather, the canon is a collection of authoritative writings. The canon, the New Testament, is not us saying, I put inspiration on you and I put God's authority on you and you will be authoritative and you will be authoritative. No, the canon is us recognizing that these books are inherently authoritative within themselves and there is nothing that we can do about it. That's the third way in which scriptures were determined. So canonization is the process of recognizing that inherent authority, not bestowing it from an outside source. 
So furthermore, as a result of this, we don't have the scriptures, as some people would say, because of the church, but we have the church because of the scriptures. Now, I only got a couple minutes left, and I want to address some misconceptions that we have concerning the scriptures. The first is my favorite one, and that is that the Bible was written by the man. The Bible was written by the white man so that the black man could be oppressed. Now, some of y'all know me. Do y'all really think that my black behind would be up here? (laughs) Talking about the scriptures, the authority that it has and the relevance that it has If I believe that this was written by a white man, even if you don't know me, absolutely not. The Bible ain't got nothing to do with white folk in the sense that they started it and that they and and that they um, their original plan was to oppress black people. Now, I can be real and honest and open and say white people did do that in the past for their own advantage and for their own personal gain. But inherently within itself. The Bible was written to oppress black people? Absolutely not. I think about it this way. If white people wanted to oppress black people and they began the Bible, when they make the superhero of the Bible white? But he's a Jewish man. Now, if we go on with that, another thing that we can recognize is that Christianity, especially in the West, has been whitewashed. This is why we have white Jesuses hanging around everywhere. And sometimes people would say, you worship this white Jesus. And to which I say, no, I don't. That's somebody that people drew up in Europe. That ain't got nothing to do with the God or or, or Jesus of the scriptures. Has absolutely nothing to do with it. The, the, The scriptures are not an invention of the white man to oppress black people. At the same time, recognizing that people did use it for their personal gains and advantage. Now, if we were to go back and look at history, and another thing is slavery, and I do not have time to talk about that right now, um, but we see in the Old Testament where, where Jews actually had other Jews working for them in servitude and, and as a bond servant. And, and people took this and they said, slave, black people are inferior to white people, and this is what we're going to do to them. But that is not the white man's invention. That is a lie. Secondly, another misconception is that the Bible was created at the Council of Nicaea. This is incorrect. The Council of Nicaea was held in 325, and they didn't come together to figure out what was going to be in the Bible and create the Bible. They came together to try to determine, okay, who is Jesus? Is he divine? And this is what the, the Council of Nicaea was about. They weren't coming together to create a Bible. As a matter of fact, what do y'all think they use at the council? They use the scriptures. <laughs> Last one, and I'm going to get out of y'all's way. A lot of people think that the Bible tells for us as Christians to be passive. So negatory, that is wrong as well. If we look Throughout the time of history, we look in the scriptures, we look at the civil rights movement, we look at slavery, we see Christians who were bold and who spoke out on injustices that were in their day, according to the scriptures. 
the Bible tells us to seek justice and not to do it in a way that's necessarily harming someone, but nevertheless, seek justice. The Bible has not called us to be passive. This may be why in the civil rights movement, some Christians were silent when it came to this. And they said, this is not our job. We shouldn't deal with this. We shouldn't deal with social issues. We should just deal with the gospel. Ladies and gentlemen, social issues are implications of the gospel. The Bible does not call us to be passive and to simply lay down and bow out. So we talked about why we should trust the Bible. We talked about what the Bible is. Now we're going to talk about who the Bible is for. Now, the Bible is for every person who was born of a woman. If you were not born of a woman, you ain't got to worry about it. <laughs> Earlier, I said that the Bible is cohesive and it points to a bigger picture. For the sake of saying it, the bigger picture that it points to is Christ. All throughout Scripture, we see destruction and restoration. This started in the garden, and it's still existent today. God wants for us to know him and how he can save us from destruction. He may have taken on flesh in the New Testament, but he's been here all along. In Genesis, he is the creator and the promised redeemer. In Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he is the high priest. In Numbers, he is the water in the desert. In Deuteronomy, he becomes the curse for us. In Joshua, the commander of the army of the Lord. In Judges, he delivers us from justice. In Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer. In 1 Samuel, he is all in one prophet, priest, and king. In 2 Samuel, he is the king of grace and love. 1 Kings, a ruler greater than Solomon. In 2 Kings, he is the powerful prophet. First Chronicles, he is the son of David that is coming to rule. In Second Chronicles, he is the king who reigns eternally. I'm about to go through all 66, so y'all might as well go ahead and get comfortable. In Ezra, he's the priest proclaiming freedom. Nehemiah, the one who restores what is broken down. In Esther, he is the protector of his people. In Job, mediator between God and man. In Psalms, he is our song in the morning and in the night. In Proverbs, he is our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our meaning for life. Song of Solomon, he's our author of faithful love. In Isaiah, he is the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, the weeping Messiah. Lamentations, he assumes God's wrath for us. Y'all know why y'all say? I say he assumes God's wrath for us. In Ezekiel, he is the son of man. Daniel, the stranger in the fire with us. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband, even, we run, even when we run away. Y'all know y'all don't run away a number of times. In Joel, he is sending his spirit to his people. And Amos delivers justice to the oppressed. Obadiah, the judge of those who do evil. In Jonah, he is the greatest missionary. And Michael, he casts our sins into the sea of forgetfulness. In Nahum, he proclaims future world peace we cannot even imagine. In Habakkuk, he crushes injustice. In Zephaniah, he is the warrior who saves. In Haggai, he restores our worship. In Zechariah, he prophesies a Messiah, Messiah who was pierced for us. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness who brings healing. In Matthew, the Messiah who is king. In Mark, the Messiah who is servant. In Luke, the Messiah who is a deliverer. In John, the Messiah who is a God in the flesh. In Acts, he is the spirit who dwells in his people. In Romans, the righteousness of God. In 1 Corinthians, he is the power and love of God. In 2 Corinthians, he is the down payment of what's to come. In Galatians, he is our very life. 
In Ephesians, he is the unity of our church. In Philippians, the joy of our life. In Colossians, he holds the supreme position in all things. First Thessalonians, our comfort in the last days. In Second Thessalonians, he is our returning king. In First Timothy, he is the savior of the worst sinners. In Second Timothy, he is the leader of the leaders. Titus, foundation of truth. Philemon, he is our mediator. Hebrews, he is our high priest. And in James, he matures our faith. In 1 Peter, our hope in times of suffering. In 2 Peter, the one who guards us from false teaching. In 1 John, he is the source of all fellowship. 2 John, God in the flesh. 3 John, source of all true. In Jude, he protects us from stumbling. And in Revelation, he is the king of kings. He is the Lord of Lords, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and he is coming again and the one who makes all things new. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving scriptures. Thank you for giving us something in which we can know you. God, I pray that we will cling to this truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. 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 So uh, we are going to start a Q&A portion. Just about five to ten minutes left. But first, if anyone has a red Nissan that starts with 9CY, your lights are on. So please turn those off. Red Nissan, 9CY. All right. So I'm going to grill Montrell here. That was such an encouraging message. I feel like the just... Uh, the synopsis on Christ, the bigger picture, was encouraging. I trust it was for you, too. So I have some questions for you. All right. Cool. Is that cool? Cool. Great. It has to be. Um, let's do this. So um, can you share how one might overcome the doubts um, that someone experiences in believing the Bible's authenticity? Hmm. Can you share how one might overcome yeah. it? Well, um, I think that, A, it requires... Uh, as as you're researching, I think it requires some some humility. Um, I, I think that working through certain misconceptions, um, just having to prepare yourself for of you know I can be wrong about this. And uh, we heard from Carde earlier who had misconceptions, and um, of course it was was God drawing him and, and piercing him. But I think on Carde's part in behalf, it, it took some, some real humility to say, okay, I, I can be, be wrong in this. And it's all, talking about the, the authenticity um, of Scripture. Absolute truth is something that does exist. And if someone makes the statement, absolute truth does not exist, well, how in the world are we supposed to believe that? Because that's not consistent. So if, if there is no truth, how am I supposed to believe you when you just said there is no truth? So absolute truth does exist, and I think that it takes humility in, in, in seeking it out. Amen. So you went through the, the bigger picture in the last section of your sermon. Uh, could you speak to why is it important to believe the whole uh, message of, of Scripture in terms of the Bible's reliability um, and not just some of it? Yeah. So from, from beginning to end, like I said earlier, the Bible is cohesive. So, for example, um, so, hey, there was, in, in, in the 30s, it was the, uh, I guess, the reemergence of what we know as liberal theology when, when scriptures were uh, denied 
them being inspired and them uh, being authoritative. Um, another thing that was denied was um, uh, substitutionary atonement, for example, right? Definition. So substitutionary atonement is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and, and, and God punishing or, or Jesus taking on the wrath that we deserve. Um, in the Old Testament, we see where sacrifices had to be made for atonement of sins. In the New Testament, and, and they would um, sacrifice lambs and, and goats and sheep. In the New Testament, we see where John says, Behold the Lamb of God who is coming to take away the sins of the world. Now, can you imagine what the Israelites and, and Jewish people who heard this, these stories growing up, can you imagine what they felt when they heard John the Baptist say that? They knew exactly what he was talking about. So I think that's an example of why we should believe all the scriptures because it's consistent. And it points to a bigger picture, and there is no way that men could have made that up. Could you, uh, you mentioned some misconceptions. One, um, that the Bible is uh, canonized at the Council of Nicaea, which is a pretty much a big discussion. You also mentioned uh, the misconception that Christianity um, was used as a tool to oppress, um, primarily that being the goal of the Bible. Could you speak to just some of those specific misconceptions and kind of from like a counselor perspective, um, what, what, um, how might that cause someone to doubt the reliability of scripture? Um, and then maybe give us a, a solution to that. I don't think there's a single person in here who would, who would doubt something that encouraged and taught for people to own people. Like, if I'm honest, like, I, I had times as well when I'm just like, okay, is this what the Bible teaches? If it does, then, you know, we should, you know, check, check, check this out. Um, so naturally, these misconceptions would cause one to, to separate themselves, which we've seen a lot of, especially over the past couple of years. Um, what was the second part of that question? The second part was, uh, how might, um, so those doubts that uh, one feels, how might they um, kind of look into what those things are and, look, and compare that to truth? Some practical advice. So okay, you, yeah. you brought some up. Yeah. Um, it's going to take a lot of research. <laughs> um, it's going to take um, understanding context that was going on there. Um, if, if, um, if I just made the statement, uh, a, a random statement up here that says, hey, I fell last night. For some of my brothers, they would say, oh, you fell into sexual sin. But I would say, no, nah, I just literally fell. Like I fell down and I hurt my knee. So it's the same way with the scriptures. There, there's a certain context uh, that the scriptures were written in. So I think understanding uh, the context of scripture will help uh, with the misconceptions. I think going back to uh, the origin, you know, of Christianity. Christianity, if you guys did not know, Christianity did not start in America. It's not a, it's not a Western, in, inherently, it's not inherently a Western uh, religion and practice. So I think just going all the way back to uh, Africa, where a lot of the church fathers were from. Um, we talked about uh, the, the idea of canon and canonicity earlier. It was actually um, Athanasius, who was African, who came up with that term. And that was him also arguing at the Council of Nicaea. So when we look at his roots, uh, Christianity, uh, biblical Christianity, may look a whole lot differently than the Christianity that's here in America. Um, so true. So you named Athanasius. What about, just take maybe three seconds to name some other, um, just some other yeah, Tertullian, that have encouraged um, you. Augustine or Augustine, if you're pompous. Um, Athanasius, of course. 
um, uh, my man's, uh, man, I can't think of his name right now. Um, I can't think of his name right now. Catch me afterwards and I got you. You could describe him. Yeah, help yeah, me. That's for a later time. Uh, all right, last question. We're in Baltimore City, right? Yes. Okay, great. Um, you mentioned the origination of, of the canonized scripture, yeah. right, which happened some thousands of thousands of years ago, right? So what hope do we have in Baltimore City for the Bible's authenticity? What, what mm. hope yeah. in the city? Oh, like I said earlier in, 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 in the sermon, man, um, when we look at scriptures, we see where... So Baltimore is a city that uh, has a lot of oppression in it, and this is not uh, unique, especially for, for inner cities. But since you asked about Baltimore, you know, Jesus came to, to the lowly. Jesus came to the people who were oppressed and to people who were overlooked, and he cared about them. Another thing that we see in scriptures is that it seems um, as if Jesus had more concern about poor people than he did about rich people. And I think that that's one of uh, the things that marks uh, Baltimore is a whole lot of poverty. Um, so a hope that we uh, can have in Baltimore City is that Jesus cares about these people. People have been made in the image of God, according to scriptures, right, and should be valued as such. So um, they have a God who cares about them. They have people who care about them and a church who cares about them. And one of those churches is the Garden Church. And we meet every Sunday at... I feel like this is a good time to say shout out to all the churches that are here Indeed. today. We love, we love y'all. Um, so thank you for sharing. I would love it if you could just pray for us um, as we seek to apply the truths that you spoke about today um, into our own hearts, into our own lives, and hopefully into the lives of people that we come in contact with. Yeah, let's pray. God, thank you for uh, just our time here tonight. Thank you for being a God who has made it possible for us to know you. For those who have been struggling, who are in this room, and, and people who, may been, who have been searching and researching, God, I pray that you will give clarity where there is confusion, God, and I pray that you will draw people out of their sins, and I pray that they'll see the beauty of you. I pray that they'll see the beauty of scriptures, and I pray that they will enjoy a relationship and a union with you. In your son, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.